Hello and welcome to Bring Your Own Popcorn. Let us preach to your choir or stoke your ire as we spiral down memory lane with cult classics, Jurassics, and other genres that rhyme with traffic. What we lack in education, we make up for with comedy, compassion, and camaraderie. I'm your host, Mixtape Majesty, here today with a very special guest who is a fellow co-host of Graphic Novel Explorers Club and a self-described dad geek, my good friend, Dennis. Dennis, thank you so much for being on and welcome to the pod. Hey, thanks a lot for having me on here. Hey, let me ask you, do you have a preference of the type of popcorn you like to eat? By type, do you mean the species of corn? <laughs> well, more of flavor is what I'm thinking. I prefer savory and the way that I make my popcorn at home is I pop it in a blend of olive oil, coconut oil, and butter. After it's popped, I top it with nutritional yeast flakes and tahini. What the heck? I have to try that. <laughs> yeah, it's really good. You know, it's really amazing. I, I didn't really think about it too much until my mom got me a subscription to like this popcorn of the month sort of thing where Ooh. it's a microwave popcorn thing. I, you know, it came with the kettle corn and different types of movie popcorn, which I'm always, I, I never understand the difference between buttered popcorn and movie popcorn. Does that just mean extra butter? I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I know you used to work at a movie theater. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea. Are they just different names for the same thing, maybe? Yeah, maybe. I noticed there's some theaters, but some theaters actually offer flavor toppings that you can add, which uh, I'm, I'm kind of sad that I haven't been to a theater that actually offers the flavor toppings. It was only in Southern California that I experienced that. So I'm kind of a little bummed about that. Oh, when I worked for the theater, I worked for Regal and we had the flavor toppings if you mean like the powder but yeah, I tried exactly. I tried it once and I choked so <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's kind of like trying to take cinnamon raw right I mean if you don't yeah. blend it improperly it's just powder it's like trying to eat parmesan cheese that's just on the top yeah and it's kind of hard to like shake your popcorn bucket in the theater a little messy thinking about the movie experience how do you take your popcorn there since you don't have all that fancy stuff oh buttery topping and then I I do have the fancy stuff because I bring a ziploc <laughs> bag of yeast oh, no and time. <laughs> yeah so people just assume you're snorting coke in the theater but yeah. actually you're just adding it to your popcorn that's yeah cool. i pull i pull a little ziploc baggie out of the my the inner pocket of my trench coat that's awesome yeah my wife introduced this to me i like to have m&ms mixed in with the buttery popcorn like it sounds oh, horrifying yeah. you're like actually it, the third guest we've had that does that oh really yeah m&m and popcorn team go uh specifically for me i like peanut m&ms but my wife tends to Ooh. prefer just the regular nice different sorry strokes, to derail different us folks oh it's <laughs> No, this is welcome to popcorn talk. <laughs> <laughs> that's what popcorn I thought pop. this was when you invited me. Yeah. I thought that's all we were going to talk about. So I have a yeah. whole. Did you bring your popcorn? Thing. Yeah, I brought my popcorn. I brought a whole like list of things. We're going to go into different brands. And <laughs> so I'm ready. I'm ready to talk. All right. <laughs> Perfect. Adjacent to adjacent to popcorn talk. Do you do you want to talk about movies? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What better? What goes better with popcorn than a movie? Exactly. We want to get a little background of what kind of movie watcher you are, in addition to what kind of popcorn eater you are. And in that vein, I want to ask you a couple questions about your history with movies. Starting with, what was the first movie you remember seeing in theaters? I've listened to your podcast and I've heard people explain what their first movie is. And I'm mm -hmm. astounded at how well they remember some of that because <laughs> I vaguely sort of remember some of the movies I saw in the theaters, but not really. To be perfectly honest, I mean, I grew up like watching a lot of late night TV, even as a kid, I was, I've always been like kind of a night owl. And so I watched a lot of creature features on Friday nights, which were for those who 
too young to know, you know, local channels would usually have some kind of host and they would present some kind of horror movie or, or, or monster movie. And they would just show those throughout the night until TV station turned off for the evening, which is also dates me quite a bit. <laughs> I, I vaguely remember seeing Empire Strikes Back and I had to actually nice. look. It turns out they had a re-release. The ad showed Darth Vader in the room that he fights Luke in. The first movie I vaguely remember is the 1981 re-release of Empire Strikes Back. I have terrible memory. <laughs> I don't know how a lot of your guests remember some of that. I mean, I distinctly remember seeing a lot of movies as a kid that I was not supposed to. <laughs> From My parents had HBO. I was left home alone a lot. I have lots of memories of watching the Porky films. I remember the Howling series, Day of the Living Dead, a lot of horror films. I remember distinctly too, we visited a family friend. For those who don't know, VHS tapes were copyright protected, so you couldn't copy them in any way. So this one family friend had set up, I guess, a camcorder system where they videotape the TV oh to tape gosh. a movie. <laughs> right. And so I distinctly remember watching The Thing, which became one of my all-time oh. favorite films. Yeah, same. But it was weird because at first you, you would think it's just a regular copy. And then once in a while you hear someone cough or someone walk <laughs> in front of the camcorder. And so yeah. it was almost like a home version of people bootlegging movies in the theater. Yeah, that's so funny. And I also feel like we've come full circle because there's virtual reality headsets now where you can watch like Netflix or whatever and mm -hmm. they put you in a virtual living room to watch it. So you're like oh, watching wow. a virtual TV in a virtual living room. It's funny you bring that up. I, I was just remarking with a friend for the longest time, especially if you're rich, people like to build home theaters in their home, right? They yeah. get like movie theater type seats. You want that experience. You want a projector as opposed to just a TV. I so remember you, that on MTV Cribs. Exactly. And then I always dreamed of having something like that. Yeah. But I saw some news report where some theaters are actually building beds in <laughs> theater, which a multitude of reasons that's <laughs> a bad idea for everyone, including the staff who has to clean that up. Yes. It's so weird. The theaters are building homes in the theater and we're building theaters in our home. No one's comfortable watching the movie in their native environment, yet they want to replicate <laughs> it elsewhere. It's just it's just bizarre to me. Yeah, very strange. No one can decide what they want. Right. Oh, and to answer what you were saying about this question, most guests call their mom <laughs> to ask them what was the first movie that, <laughs> that they saw. And then usually answering this question takes like 15 to 30 minutes for most people and then I just edited it down to make it sound like they immediately answered. Oh, thank God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I cut out the whole part where they're like, I don't know. <laughs> well, hopefully through the magic of editing, you can add more content to my, uh, I'll, I'll give some voice samples and you can just type stuff up. Yeah, and copy paste it together. Well, the next question is, what was the first movie that you remember seeing in theaters without any parents or supervising adults? Okay, so this one is a very clear, very distinct memory for this wouldn't fly nowadays. My parents didn't honestly take me to the movies very much. They were kind of frugal and thus my first answer. But on a regular basis, unfortunately, we went to Reno to gamble. Well, they went to Reno to gamble. So they would frequently leave me by myself, either in the arcade or somewhere else, like in the hotel room. Not the greatest thing. They were yeah. great parents. <laughs> but uh, one time they left me at a hotel next to a movie theater slash strip mall. This was the weekend that Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock was coming out. And nice. I was huge, huge, huge Star Trek fan. I had seen Star Trek Two numerous times in Star Trek 1, mainly because the arcade they used to drop me off in also had like this little movie room where they would constantly swap movies. They would play on rotation Flash Gordon, which I know Johnny had mentioned and, and talked about extensively in a, in a yeah. previous episode, <laughs> uh, which I love. 
counter to what Johnny thought. I actually love that movie. <laughs> it sounded pretty great. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's a pretty amazing movie. Uh, and there's also, I think, a, an amazing pinball machine tied to it. But anyway, uh, th <laughs> that, The Secret of Nim, Star Trek The Motion Picture, and Star Trek II were in constant rotation. It would be like this weird, tiered, uncomfortable staircase seating. And it was a dark room. And you would just sit there and watch movies. And if you were a poor kid or used up all your quarters, that's all you could do. Uh -huh. So I would just sit in there. So I would watch those movies constantly. So I was a huge Star Trek fan. I remember getting in trouble at school because I used the word damn it. And <laughs> my teacher says, you can't curse. And I said, well, if Dr. McCoy can say, damn it, Jim, on TV. Why can't I use the word damn it? I don't understand. It's okay on TV. Yeah. I, I regress. Yeah. So Star Trek Three: Search for Spock. I was so into it. The movie was not actually a surprise to me totally. I had the, the DC comic book adaption, which for those who don't know, if a movie came out that was a, you know, a big blockbuster movie, sometimes they would do a comic book adaption, which is literally just like the screenplay or the movie translated into comic book form. So you didn't have to wait for the home video version, I guess. Like a novelization. Yeah. I, I guess they still do that i had read the comic book I, I knew the movie inside out but i didn't care i mean i was so psyched to see the real movie i had the official magazine which you sometimes you still see those return of the jedi's coming out so they'll have a whole magazine devoted to behind the scenes footage or drawings and, and interviews with directors and actors so i had the dc comics and official magazine for the search for spock i was so psyched <laughs> you know i asked my parents if i could go see the movie by myself and i was only i think nine at the time and they said sure whatever and so i felt very grown up <laughs> yeah i was nine years old i was able to leave our hotel room by myself. I walked to this strip mall, which was terribly boring for a nine-year-old. There was no toy store. It was all Southwest jewelry, those stores that sell like the really fancy artwork, but it had a movie theater attached. I went and got my ticket. I was very excited. Being very frugal and, and taking that on for my parents, I did not buy any food, no snacks, no popcorn, no drinks. I was just, I just had my magazines and comic book in hand. I was looking it over. I couldn't wait to see the new Starship that was in the movie, which was the Excelsior. <laughs> to be a perfect honest the whole frugalness with movies followed me pretty much until I started seeing my wife before then I would be the type that brings snacks in all the time mm -hmm. or didn't buy anything like I just I didn't want to waste my money and it wasn't until my wife that I started dating her and she wanted to buy popcorn I was like oh okay <laughs> I guess we'll buy popcorn and then it slowly as the years have gone on I've been more relaxed with that and obviously with my kids which I love taking them to movies Aww. it's a big experience we get everything you know I get popcorn I get snacks back then Anyway, to go back, I didn't buy any snacks or anything. And yeah, just watch the movie. I loved it. You know, a lot of people diss a lot of the odd Star Trek movies, meaning odd numbered. The rule used to be if it was an even numbered movie, it was a good movie. If it was an odd numbered Star Trek movie, it was bad. <laughs> I haven't heard that before. It was a common thing among Star Trek fans. Oh. Uh, the thing is, Star Trek 3 had a ton of great stuff. It had a new starship, the Excelsior. It had the first appearance of the Klingon Bird of Prey. Christopher Lloyd, Doc from Back to the Future, as a Klingon. A, oh my Amazing Klingon, uh, who's really attached to his pet. I mean, it's like, I don't know what you would call it. It's like a space worm. He treats it like a space cat. The, the pet ends up getting killed. Not the space worm. Yeah, no. And he gets super sad and emotional. Oh my God. It's amazing. I would too. I'm already sad about it. And it finally has a, I don't know if you're much of a Star Trek fan. A lot of times, one of the tropes in Star Trek, Kirk would initiate or threaten to initiate the self-destruct sequence. That was oh always a big veiled threat. <laughs> Do like, what I gonna, say or I'll blow yeah, us all up. <laughs> basically, look, you can't take our ship. We're just going to blow up. And they would always threaten it. Maybe Maybe they would like get to the countdown point, but nothing ever happened. Well, in this movie, they do the countdown. They blow up the Enterprise, which what? amazing. The whole Enterprise just goes down. And it was, you know, for me, it was a pretty emotional scene Yeah, to, to see the Enterprise actually go down. Star Trek 3, Search for Spock, despite the haters, I actually love that movie. The first one I saw by myself. Okay, spoiler for Star Trek 3. What was it? Return of the Spock? <laughs> 
Search Return of the Spock. <laughs> Search for Spock. So what's the story with the end of it that the ship explodes? Is the story just they all died and that was supposed to be the end of Star Trek? Oh, no. So the Enterprise was damaged beforehand from the previous movie. So they only left with the crew. They were going to get boarded by the uh, Klingons. So they decide we're going to beam onto the planet. Oh. trick the Klingons to get on onto the Enterprise and then blow it up so that it kills most of the Klingons, which they end up doing. So smart. Yeah. Hell yeah. And something I like about Star Trek is the fact that as far as I know, it started out where Klingons were just straight up villains. But I love mm-hmm. that over the eons of different Star Trek, what do you call it? Canon is that they become like, oh, you know what? everyone in space is just a person and like some of them are good and some of them are bad so yeah we have Klingons on our crew and and I just love that no one's just a flat-out villain and even like Q is like this really complex character that's a a thing they even struggled with surprisingly enough in TNG there was Worf and he was part of the crew but then they introduced the Ferengi who were this huge like stereotype right they were just mustache twirling they didn't have literal mustaches (laughs) ear twirling mustache twirling yeah ear twirling bad guys who were like you know with say stuff like females and all that kind of stuff and just re- you know they would punch over. classic sign of an evil person someone who says yeah. female but then with deep space nine which i argue is a close second in terms of favorite star trek series they introduce a much more complex ferengi architecture and civilization and they're not all just bad they're complex characters i agree that the initial series you know the romulans whoever mm-hmm. they're all just like alien bad guys yeah even though roddenberry was about understanding other people even if they are aliens he tried to show that, you know, no matter what your difference is, you can still be friends. There were still some stereotypes, but over the years, they definitely have made them a little more nuanced. Yeah. You asked if I was a Star Trek fan, and I am a bit, I would say I'm definitely more of a Star Wars fan. So you said your first movie you think you saw in theaters was Star Wars, and the Mm -hmm. first one you saw alone was Star Trek. Are you more of a Star Wars or a Star Trek fan? That's a famous, often asked question Mm -hmm. of a lot of fans, right? Are you a Star Wars or Star Trek fan? Frankly, I'm both. Yeah, I, I find myself evenly split. I never understood, especially when I was younger, why they wanted to divide in tribes. And um, this speaks to our society really as a whole. I feel like people really want to make themselves part of a tribe, both to feel like they belong and to also have a group that they hate. So I always considered myself both. I was a Trekkie and a Star Wars nerd a Warsy. at the same time. A Trekkie and a mm-hmm, Warsy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also like them both pretty equally. I-, I won't get into like why I'm more familiar with Star Wars, but I will say that I think the key difference between them is that Star Wars stories are generally a little more digestible and a little less intellectual and they do have social justice narratives but they're a little more ham-fisted I think Mm -hmm. than in a way that I enjoy than like subtle like they're I think they're less subtle and then Star Wars is also just openly the classic hero story and the hero right. story is a story narrative that storytellers have been using for probably hundreds of years and it's just something that's very palatable and appeals broadly to every man which is why Star Wars is no longer a nerd thing it's like everybody right. likes Star Wars whereas Star Trek I think still remains firmly kind of a nerd thing and I think that has to do a lot with the fact that it is more intellectual and I don't know there's more just talking <laughs> without action no absolutely you're absolutely right there's less phaser fires uh, Mm -hmm. from star trek a lot of times there's a lot of diplomacy you know discussion a navel gazing in terms of social issues you know they'll have a whole episode about some society involving cloning for instance whereas you know star wars isn't going to waste their time they they just clone people as a matter of getting you know through the the story it's much more fists and guns Mm -hmm. in terms of star wars although i will say clone wars Mm -hmm. and rebels and such have really done a great job making things 
things a lot more interesting. And, and for instance, looking at the clones and seeing how they deal with PTSD and such regarding the war. It's not as deep as Star Trek, but I, I will say that the, the cartoons really do add a depth that the movies just can't address given the amount of time they have. Nice. Yeah, I haven't seen Clone Wars, but I'll have to check it out. People are like, I thought you were talking about a different movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no. It's perfect because it's all getting into the next question, which is overall, what is your relationship with movies? How would you describe it? Casual, hobbyist, do movies change your life or are they just entertainment? I, I kind of said at the beginning that I don't have a great memory. And unfortunately, that means I don't remember quotes. I don't remember always who directed it, who started in it. I would say I'm kind of in between. I consider myself a casual watcher in the sense that I don't remember a ton of things. I try to in college. I try to write reviews of things, you know, in-depth kind of variety, entertainment weekly level reviews. I just couldn't do it. I don't have that kind of in me where I can go, oh, this is an analogy to this and blah, blah, blah. I just, I don't have it in me in terms of at least expressing it in writing. I consider myself a casual watcher in that sense, but I am a hobbyist in the sense that I love all sorts of movies. I collect movies and I, I love seeing different types of movies. I, it may su surprise some people, but I love musicals. I love old school musicals. I love old movies. I love new movies. I love popcorn flicks. I love dumb, stupid movies. And so uh, I, I love movies in general. And I, I feel like they're important to me because they allow me to escape to some other place. It also allows me to see experiences or at least through an analogy, how people experience certain things, trauma or, you know, tribulations and their fears or dreams, you know, even through horror movies, the whole range of human experiences, essentially. And so I find movies very important and, and very just overall very important to me. I agree. And I think that's wonderful. Other than the movie that we're talking about today, tell me one of your favorite movies of all time and why it's one of your favorite movies. Despite what you may have heard, Star Trek 3 is not my favorite movie of all time. <laughs> Actually, I would say it's a close tie between Casablanca or The Shining. And those are very different mm -hmm. movies. Mm -hmm. uh, they were some of my early films that I watched as a kid. And uh, funny enough, I watched Casablanca on my own. Just It was on TV one day. And for those who don't know, it's weirdly enough, it's a 1942 film that takes place in 1941, which is wild to me to have a movie back then in the middle of a world war about the world war, essentially. Yeah. It's not a war film, but it takes place during that time period. Yeah. Humphrey Bogart's famous film. He runs a night nightclub in Casablanca, Morocco. He runs into his former lover, Ingrid Bergman, who is now seeing a resistance fighter. They're going through Casablanca, which is, I think, a semi-neutral territory with Nazi presence. He has to make a decision on whether or not to help them. And ultimately, Ultimately, despite being madly in love with her, still in love with her, despite having the ability to basically turn him in, he helps her. And he helps him as well to escape at the risk of his own nightclub and his own uh, welfare. To me, the movie is amazing because you see these scenes where, you know, he's madly in love with Ingrid Bergman. They're in France. You see him at his lowest point where he's very bitter that she left for the freedom fighter and you could see the pain in his face and despite all of that he decides to be super selfless and because he loves her so much do what's right for her which is to help her and her resistance fighter boyfriend escape Casablanca and flee from the Nazis. I just thought that was pretty amazing to, to see that kind of love. It's weird. You know, most of the time I'll do anything to be with you is usually the kind of story you see in movies. In this case, it's I'll do anything so that you're happy. You know, the, this kind of selfless happiness uh, wish that he had. And so that's why that's my number one film. 
in defense of my second film, The Shining, which is very different. That's not about love. That's about a man's descent into madness. I also found that fascinating. I mean, there's bits of horror, obviously. There's the famous bathtub scene, which traumatized me for years. But it was amazing to me that I saw it because, oh, this is a scary movie. I was like, okay, I'm going to get ready for ghosts, everything like that. And there isn't a lot of that. There isn't a lot of gore or anything like that. But the isolation and the music and the whole vibe of the film has this weird suffocating horror to it that just, I don't know, I can't explain it, but it's just, it was totally my jam. I just love how, you know, he descends into this madness that's just so subtle. At first, he's just typing things and you see him working hard. And then that horror when Shelley Duvall, who I only previously had seen in the Popeye movie, <laughs> when, when she realizes all he's typing is, you know, all work and no play, make Jack a dull boy. And page after page and just that, that review Feel. Yeah, so spooky and mind-blowing. Like, definitely, maybe it didn't make number one, but it's definitely a, a number two for me. Nice. I love your I love your reasons for why those are your favorite movies. <laughs> very well, very well articulated and thought out. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> this is the space where the ads go. Greetings, folks. This is Daniel Cordova, your host and metal guide of the Far Beyond Metal podcast. Far Beyond Metal is a show that sets out to defy what it means to be metal by exploring the minds of the musicians, writers, and metal media staples behind the genre that is largely made up of adults growling like monsters. Is the entire show an excuse for me to talk about The Simpsons, Prince, and Cats with my metal heroes? Absolutely. But we also talk about, I don't know, guitars and new albums and stuff, too. Each episode also features a guest squirming as they discuss their first band, and I recommend a new band for you to check out. It's a potpourri of metallic mayhem. You can find the show over at farbeyondmetalpodcast.com. I'm Aubrey. I'm Dennis. And I'm Johnny. Every other Tuesday, we take an in-depth and humorous look at different comic books. We're talking indie comics. Capes and cowls. And everything in between. Graphic Novel Explorers Club is available on all platforms. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to tell your friends, you nerd. <laughs> Hi, I'm Milk, and this is a promo for my podcast, Nymphomercial, where me and my co-host review hentai both enthusiastically and regrettably. So if that sounds like a good time to you, find Nymphomercial wherever you get podcasts. Recording in progress. Today's feature film, selected by Dennis, is an award-winning Hong Kong action film. This movie was John Woo's last Hong Kong film before he moved over to Hollywood. Other Hong Kong films by John Woo include The Killer and A Better Tomorrow, and some of his Hollywood films include Face Off and Mission Impossible 2. The movie that we're talking about today is Hard Boiled, released in 1992. Dennis, can you please give me a brief summary of your chosen movie in your own words? Spoilers are okay. It's 
John Woo's last film in Hong Kong, and actually technically his last film with Chow Yun-Fat, sadly. The story is about two cops, Chow Yun-Fat as Tequila, Tony Leung as Alan, a deep undercover cop who both ultimately unite to take down a maniac international arms dealer. There's several action sequences, which ultimately culminates to an explosive finale at a hospital, which takes up almost half of the movie, which surprised <laughs> me. Basically, it ends with Chow Yun-Fat facing off against Johnny, the main triad guy who has taken Alan hostage. Alan then wrestles the wrestles the gun to the point where he shoots himself in the gut, a la kind of sort of speed, and then gives Tequila the opportunity to basically shoot Johnny in the eye. And then ultimately, it's left semi-ambiguous for a few seconds whether or not Alan had survived, but then it turns out at the end that he was able to survive and he's seen uh, sailing away on his boat. Sailing off into the sunset to yep. Antarctica. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Paradise. <laughs> so weird. You know, I'll, I'll say this. I love this film. I, I loved it when I saw it, but there are some weird choices in terms of editing and some things seem a little jarring, especially for a modern moviegoer. Mm. Uh, but ultimately, yeah, I, I really love this film. I was first introduced to it. I think it was around 94, 95. I had just recently graduated from high school and I was introduced to the world of anime. Now I knew about uh, Japanese animation beforehand, but I was only able to consume what was readily available at the video store and such. And so I wasn't aware of the wide breadth of, of movies. In fact, I was introduced to what was known as fan subs. Basically, people would take either VHS or Laserdiscs from Japan, do their own subtitles using some very complicated and expensive equipment and translate the work themselves and then release it, usually for only the cost of the videotape itself. So it's usually $5 a nice. pop. I, there was like a ton of movies I had no idea in shows. I had no, no idea that it existed. And then so I, I got into Japanese anime big time a, in college. And through that, there was discussion also of uh, Hong Kong action movies, which I kind of knew some stuff. I, I Obviously, I was a big Bruce Lee fan. I knew some martial art movies that I would see uh, on the late night shows that I, I would watch and I knew about what was known as Sentai Rangers which later became Power Rangers So I would watch a lot of that stuff on late night TV, you know, 2 a.m. Uh, on the local channels. But I, I was not aware of Hong Kong action movies. So my friend said, hey, you know, the little indie theater in Berkeley is showing these movies. Why don't we go see it? And so I said, OK. And that's actually the first time I went to see an indie movie. I mean, an indie movie theater. So we went and saw it and my mind was blown. I mean, from my mind was blown after the first initial scene. So the, the movie starts with uh, Chow Yun-Fat playing clarinet and some nice relaxing scenes of Hong Kong. And at first I thought, this is a really odd movie. Like at first I thought we went to, <laughs> I thought we were, were in the wrong movie because it's like an art film. Yeah, an art film or a romance film. It did not seem like an action film. Most of the time in an action film, you know, they try to establish the bad guys right away, right? Like in, I think yeah. in Die Hard, you see the terrorists loading up in the van, going off into the building. Or if it's a typical 80s action film, you see the kick-ass action lead 
shooting down a bunch of bad guys or loading up with equipment or something like that. And here you have Chow Yun-Fat playing clarinet and it's soft jazz. <laughs> Little did I know this was the calm before the storm in terms of the movie. And then from there on, my jaw dropped. I mean, I don't know how you felt about it, but the key first action scenes takes place in a, a tea house. It's just amazing. It's just a spectacle to watch in terms of how it's choreographed. What I later found out was called gun fu. So it's like, yeah. it's something that you see, you take for granted nowadays, you know, the Born Identity, John Wick, the Matrix films, you know, any Robert Rodriguez film like Desperado, they all take from these, but it's like a kung fu, but mixed with gunplay. And it's using the guns as an extension of the character themselves. You know, how they pose and, and how they look is just as important as them shooting the bad guy. It's it's not so much just pointing and, and shooting. It's actually posing in a very dramatic way, but doing something extremely crazy and visually interesting. The famous scene from the tea house that blew my mind was when he kind of stumbles on the stairs and he ends up sliding down the banister with two guns in his hands, shooting the bad guys the whole time shooting at them as he's sliding down. I mean, the crowd at the theater just lost it and I lost it too. I just <laughs> couldn't believe what I was seeing because I was used to a lot of action. And they're pretty standard. A beefy guy carries a big gun and starts shooting the bad guys and the bad guys fall. But here, the bad guys were not just falling, but they were falling in a very dramatic, hyper-real sense and with blood bags and everything. It was just, it blew my mind. You asked how I felt about it. And uh, something I've touched on in the podcast before is that something about my brain cannot handle fight scenes. Mm -hmm. I just can't follow the action. Mm -hmm. It's it's pretty frustrating because like I, I want to know what's happening. Right. But my my brain's just like, nah, we're gonna I'm gonna go over here now. <laughs> just can't <laughs> can't track it at all. So I really like to hear people talk about it and kind of tell me what was happening. Cause like what you described just now, I'm like, I didn't really see any of that because <laughs> I just I can't track action for some reason. And I don't watch a lot of action movies for that reason. But then it makes it really fun to to be able to hear the way other people see them and enjoy them because then I can vicariously enjoy it even if I can't track what's happening in the moment. And I would argue in some cases it's up to the editor to really make these scenes work well. I've seen some action scenes where the few of the Marvel shows that were on Netflix, I couldn't tell you what was happening. It was too <laughs> it was too shadowy. I saw a few punches thrown here and there and yeah. I couldn't tell what was happening. Here I could. Now admittedly it's chaotic. There are so many things happening. It's not just pulling out a gun. There's one part, I think an undercover cop knocks over this bird cage. And then I don't know what happened to the poor bird, but Chow Yun-Fat smashes the bird cage <laughs> oh. and reveals two hidden guns underneath the bird cage, pulls out the guns. There's another part where he kicks over a table that has a gun on it, knocks it in the air, catches it and shoots the bad guy. There's so much happening that it's frantic. It's kinetic. It's, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot to take in. But once you see that, you realize like Hollywood really took a lot from this. I mean, there would yeah. not there would not be any Matrix or John Wick films without this film itself. Definitely. I will admit this is great if this is your only John Woo film. You see, after you watch enough of his, he's like, wow, this guy really likes like slow motion almost to the point where it's like, do you really need slow motion? Or are you just padding <laughs> out the time? Because there are mm. scenes where he just uses slow motion when people are just like walking or whatever. And I just <laughs> like, man, that's a lot of slow motion. The Matrix basically went meta with it. So it wasn't just a filming technique where they use slow motion. They actually made integrated slow motion as part of a power that the character had. But I'm very yeah. sure that none of that would have happened without the John Woo films itself. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I read about John Woo as I was researching for this. He's had a huge 
huge influence on on film as a whole and particularly on the action genre in Hollywood. Yeah, the, after the tea house scene, Tequila, you know, is frustrated with his chief, which is typical of these kind of films. He eventually makes his way to a warehouse. There, Alan is tasked by Johnny to betray his boss, Uncle Hoy. And then we're introduced to Mad Dog, which is one of Johnny's henchmen. And he's like the Terminator. This guy comes in literally guns blazing. They, they ride <laughs> in like a motorcycle gang. And then for no good reason, he runs in and slides the motorcycle hits a bunch of people with a sliding motorcycle and then pops up immediately and just mows them down with an Uzi. It's just amazing to watch. <laughs> it's surreal. It's not based in any kind of reality. It's super comic booky, but it, it works. And it, it's such a well choreographed scene. There, at one point, one of the other henchmen runs his motorcycle into another guy in a truck. Like it's totally unnecessary. And then the guy's kind of stumbling and then he shoots him with a gun. You know, all this time, everyone's like ragdoll physics flopping around blood packs everywhere it's just a really uh, amazing action piece although i will say this also contains one of my favorite emotional beats in the film where alan he's an undercover cop no one knows that but he's tasked with betraying uncle hoy and told by johnny to basically kill uncle hoy and he can leave uncle hoy's men alone alan decides he has to kill the uncle but also his men so he ends up killing the uncle and then taking an uzi and, and slaying most of most of his men missing only one who escapes he forces a smile to johnny and you could see the pain in his, his face he smiles like yeah i did it I'm that kind of a badass. But then his mm -hmm. his smile turns to sadness because he doesn't want to actually kill anyone. And in fact, you find out later on for every person he kills, he makes a paper crane in order to bring them down. He has to kind of be deep undercover, which means he has to act the part of a bad guy. It's one of my favorite scenes. You could see in his face. He's in a lot of pain for having to betray Uncle Hoy. He actually tries to warn and tell him beforehand, look, you should just retire in Hawaii. Go get away from here because he obviously had grown attached to him. Yeah, he had to betray him. And then Later in the movie, Tequila finds out that Alan is, in fact, an undercover cop, and he confronts him in his boat. He finds out why he has all these paper cranes, which at first I thought was like some weird Blade Runner homage or something like that. <laughs> Alan's severely injured and then and taken to a hospital. 50% of the movie takes place at, at this hospital, which is crazy there's like so many fight scenes so many cool action sequences they're they're just so babies well. yeah babies so many babies <laughs> that was one of the things that blew my mind in this film i mean it happened at the tea house and it happened at the hospital specifically there's a lot of innocent victims it kind of <laughs> blows your mind like most of the time hollywood is very safe right here yeah. are the bad guys here are the good guys and innocent victims never really get hurt sure they're threatened maybe there's one hostage like in die hard who's shot but for the most part, they kind of leave those people alone. It's very shocking when you see what would really happen if someone went crazy is that you'd see a bunch of innocent people just get mowed down. Obviously, not a great thing to happen in real life. But for an action movie, it's like you have to take this seriously because it's just a spectacle to watch. And so, yeah, a lot of innocent people get mowed down. Fortunately, no babies. But there's a huge thing where uh, Tequila's girlfriend or on and off girlfriend decides to save all these babies. It's very stressful. In your head, you think there's no way he would shoot a baby right but there's plenty of times where people are shooting at tequila he's holding a baby and they nearly miss the baby they end up shooting tequila there's plenty of times where cops are holding babies and you're worried that the babies are gonna get hit fortunately none of them yeah. are hurt they're all rescued in fact one of the babies sa saves tequila he's partially on fire and the baby ends up peeing on him and putting the fire <laughs> out so there's little bits of humor there yeah for me one of the interesting turns was mad dog so through the whole film mad dog is basically this terminator but you find out through little hints that he has sort of a moral code. 
like he only really goes against cops and other bad guys that he feels betray the, you know the organization mad dog and alan are going through the hospital jumping through windows and eventually they're pointing their guns at each other and in the middle are a group of innocent patients and a nurse they decide mutually to put their guns down and let the patients go because yeah. they have a code of honor and johnny comes in and just starts laying waste to try to kill the cop i think pretty much all the innocent people died mad dog is appalled shoots the uzi out of johnny's hand a weird turn that i did not see coming mad dog ends up kind of redeeming himself when it comes to the innocence he won't he has a code of honor so to speak yeah that whole hospital sequence various explosions and everything that takes up like 50 percent of the movie it's just a huge third act basically it's almost like a mini movie in a movie yeah something i thought was interesting when i was reading about john woo is that for this film that I've heard is is his darkest film, but it's very action packed and explosive. And I would even say a little a little traumatizing, like you were saying, with, Mm -hmm. you know, the innocent people being mowed down and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But something that's very interesting about him is he had an incredibly traumatic childhood, like probably witnessed a ton of violence. Mm -hmm. But as an adult was very shy and said or is very shy. He's still alive. Very shy and says uh, he has difficulty speaking but that he started making movies as a way to explore his feelings and thinking. And so he was using movies as language, which Mm. like, I absolutely love that. Like, that's what I want filmmakers to do. Absolutely. A way for them to express what they can't put into words. Yeah. For those who who haven't seen his other films or maybe have only seen his American films, I do highly recommend seeing some of his other flicks. Some of them are actually as well, The Killer, et cetera. He also has some slightly comedic ones. I think it's, uh, what is it? Once Upon a Thief. And funny enough, he had cooperated with, collaborated, I should say, with uh, Chow Yun-Fat on some of these other films. And most of them actually involved Chow Yun-Fat being a a slick criminal. If you've ever seen the American replacement killers, he's like that, where he wears a a really nice suit, kind of hitman looking, doesn't have too many lines sometimes, is usually some kind of hitman with a a moral code. Whereas in this one, this is Chow Yun-Fat as a cop and kind of sloppy dressed and, and your typical kind of like detective you would see in like a noir film. John Woo definitely explores a little bit of some of his other comedic sides in a couple of his other films. Some of his American films, I'm not a huge fan of. I think it was a paycheck. It was a terrible one. I did not like the John claude Van Damme one. Broken Arrow is okay. Mm-hmm. Face Off, I love. I have a huge love for Face Off. I thought that was John Woo as the most John Woo-ish. <laughs> Mission Impossible 2, eh, it's an okay Mission Impossible film. <laughs> Sadly enough, Chow Yun-Fat never worked with John Woo again. They had some kind of falling out. I'm not sure what it was. They were supposed to work on another film together, but uh, Chow Yun-Fat ended up bowing out. The closest they ever got to working together again was a video game called Strangehold. It was a direct sequel to this movie. Yeah. I just bought it. It's probably about five or ten bucks. It came out probably in the mid-2000s. It's a direct sequel. It involves the same character. Uh, Chow Yun-Fat voices it. It's basically, if you've ever played Max Payne, it's like that. Although Max Payne uses this movie as inspiration. You play Taki it uses a lot of bullet time, so to speak. Mechanics, the more outlandish your kills are, meaning like if you're hopping over tables, if you're using a, a food cart to roll around in as you're shooting bad guys, you earn bonus points or what have you. But it is a direct sequel to this movie itself. But that's the closest they ever got to working together. I heard hints that it might have been politics, especially when you talk about Hong Kong and mainland China and such. Sometimes not everyone's on the same page. People forget that not everyone was happy that Hong Kong went back to China and not everyone agrees with with how the Chinese government handles things. So sometimes there are differences of opinions that uh, you may not be aware of. Yes, that makes sense. You said that the first time you saw this movie was approximately 1994, which at this point is 20 something years ago. Would you... 
Would you say that your response has changed at all over the years to the movie or about the same? You know, that's a good question. There are some films where I watch younger that I would go, oh, that doesn't hold up, right? Because of our changing moral values or our, how introspective we are about certain things. But I would say this movie still holds up. I think it's really, in, in some ways, timeless. It's, it's your typical, almost buddy cop kind of film. Addresses some complicated issues involving Alan, where he's you know trying to catch the bad guys and he's having to sacrifice some of his morals in order to ultimately accomplish a job. It sort of reminds me a little bit of The, the Departed, which funny enough, The Departed actually, I believe, was a remake of a Hong Kong movie as well. Ah. Yeah, I, I think it holds up. The action sequences definitely do hold up. I mean, everything is practical. So there's no CGI work. There's none of that. So I would say a lot of films, once again, still owe themselves to the visual mastery that is hard-boiled. I definitely think that if you like John Wick, if you like The Matrix, if you like any of the Born Identity films, this is definitely a movie to watch and it doesn't seem dated at all. Yeah, I definitely agree. I'm someone that casts a very critical eye to older films, even though people often want to say, well, things exist as a product of their time. And I'm like, nah, we can still criticize it. Right. <laughs> we can appreciate it and criticize it. But I didn't see anything like that in this film. I, I didn't catch any racism. <laughs> I didn't catch any misogyny. Teresa is my favorite character in the whole movie. Oh, yeah, I, absolutely. I adore her. She has a really interesting role. And the, the thing about it, I think why it is timeless and what didn't become dated is because of what I said earlier about how John Woo was using movies as a language to express his feelings. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, it's it's hard to go wrong if you're being genuine, mm -hmm. regardless of what your your topic or your, your final product is. And I think a lot of the reason why other stuff doesn't age so well is that rather than a genuine exploration of feelings, sometimes filmmakers are trying to project a message mm -hmm. and trying to pro project a message or an image. And that is going to be a product of the time. So right. a projection of just like your, your personal sort of perceptions of current, <laughs> what's the word? Not stereotypes, but current cultural. Mm, Mores? Is that the word? Oh, I don't know. What does that word mean? Uh, Oh, don't ask me that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's say yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sounds good. Yeah, so I feel like that's probably part of why it holds up so well. I would agree. And yeah, Teresa's fantastic. I will say that part of the benefit is that it's not our society. It's it's a Chinese Hong Kong society of yeah. the 90s. So there's certain things that they're just, they're not going to address. It's an all Chinese crowd. They're not going to have some of the things that we would have in some of our films because of that. I will say that it is kind of odd that they would have that weird working romantic relationship, but I think it's handled very well. Yeah. And she definitely sticks up for herself. She's not so when they'd be messed with. I, I love the scene where the, the bad guy was stupid enough to slap her in the face and think she's going to cry or something like that. And she just guns him down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hell yeah. She was great. Fun fact, the movie is in Cantonese and the literal translation of the title from Cantonese to English is Hot Detective. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like to think it's, I th I'm sure it's hot, like, like hot shot, but I just like to think it's like sexy detective right. because I would say both of the detectives were, were sexy, accurate. <laughs> Speaking of which, I, I mean, maybe this is only in the translation. This movie did what I always like. It's, it's so dorky. 
but they mention the movie title in the dialogue. So Oh, I didn't catch that. Yeah, I think Johnny says tequila is something about, oh, so you're the hard-boiled detective or something like that. And so, yeah. So when he said hard-boiled, I was like, he said the thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. One thing, though, that they did do, I I don't know how I feel about John Woo himself appears in the movie as a bartender that Tequila talks with on a couple occasions. This happens sometimes in movies where sometimes there'll be a quick cameo. Mm -hmm. Guy will say, hi, here's your package, take off, and it's actually the director. Yeah. But here, he has a few lines of dialogue in a couple different scenes at different points in the movie. I don't know how you feel about that. When I watched it at first, I didn't care because I didn't know who John Woo was or what he looked like. But when I look at it now, that's one thing where I was like, it kind of takes me out of the movie if I see that stuff. Yeah. I feel like, especially because he has an extended conversation with Tequila on a couple different scenes, it kind of doesn't ruin the movie for me, but it, it feels weird. I don't know how to how to place it. So I don't know how you feel about those kind of things when they happen in movies. Yeah, it all depends. And I didn't realize that was John Woo. But now that I know that I would I would agree. Because the other thing about this movie is that it was directed by John Woo. Mm -hmm. The story is by John Woo. And it was edited by John Woo and a team. And then to also put yourself (laughs) as an actor as well. It's it's a little much. Um, But if it didn't interrupt the flow of the movie, it's not too big of a deal. But you said it took you out of it. So maybe it didn't quite work. It only took me out later on on subsequent viewings once I knew who he was. Obviously, when I I first saw it, I was like, whatever. Who's this this guy he's talking to? He's a bartender friend. But it just seems kind of odd to me. It happens a a lot with M. Night Shyamalan films. Mm. When he inserts himself, I was like, oh, there he is in his movie again. Yeah, I don't like that. (laughs) I definitely don't like it when he does it. (laughs) But I feel like he's done it in more of a, a less graceful way I don't know right it's a little more blunt yeah well how would you say that this movie has changed or affected your life since the first time you saw it it definitely gave me a greater appreciation of Asian cinema like I had known only stuff through kung fu films which you know kung fu versus gun fu they're not that diverse but it opened me up to a lot more Asian cinema that I didn't realize was out there and I really appreciate that like from here I started absorbing a lot more Hong Kong action movies kung fu films and such and so they're all action oriented but it opened me up to a whole range of cinema that I wasn't really exposed to a lot and I tried to seek, seek it out a lot more you know and like I said in the 90s it was difficult to see it on normal TV just you know, broadcast TV, but I definitely was looking for it in terms of these indie theaters and also video stores and trying to rent these movies more. And so it gave me a greater appreciation for that kind of stuff and how you can make an action movie more interesting than just your typical Die Hard or Predator or Terminator can be a whole almost dance, a ballet of movement. You know, it's sure it's hyper-realistic. It's not what you would actually do in real life, but I think at the cost of realism, you get a much more interesting film. So I, I really appreciate that more. And as, as an Asian myself, it was nice to see a lead character who also had a romance and he was talking with other Asians. It was, it was nice to see that as opposed to just watching American action films. The only time you see an Asian is when he's a silent assassin who knows Kung Fu. Yeah. So it, it, it was really nice to see kind of that diversity. I mean, obviously, I had to go outside country, essentially, in terms of watching the cinema that had other Asians in it. But it really opened my eyes that I wasn't aware of before. That's awesome. Movies are magic. Yes, movies are <laughs> magic. 
I have a couple fun facts. One fun fact, the tea house where the famous first sequence was filmed was demolished five days after they were done filming. Like they knew it was going to be demolished. So they're like, hell yeah, let's go in there and shoot oh, shit up. Nice. <laughs> yeah. But apparently while they were filming for like a couple days, the neighbors were calling the police every night to complain <laughs> about the gunfire. But the cops were fans of John Woo's movies. Like he was an established filmmaker. Right. So they were like, yeah, we don't care. <laughs> and then also the, the triads, which is what they call like the gangs, like mm-hmm. the the Hoi triad in the movie. The real triads in the city were like asking for protection money while they were filming. Not a surprise. Not a surprise. <laughs> there was all all sorts of shenanigans going on <laughs> behind the scenes. Something I thought was interesting. There was more than 200 guns were used in the film. They were all real, but Hong Kong has really strict gun laws. So they guns all had to be imported from England and then inspected by the Hong Kong police before they could ever be used. Amazingly enough, Hong Kong is known for their stuntmen doing outlandish stunts and partially because probably they aren't protected by a union. Amazingly enough, no one died, right? I mean, you hear about that every once in a while where like some prop gun accidentally shoots someone. I mean, Brandon Lee famously died on the set of The Crow because of that. Yeah, And for so having sad. so many guns that are, these are real, you know, people forget. Mm-hmm. Pro, the only thing that makes a prop gun a prop gun is usually the ammunition and I think something that blocks it from actually firing a bullet out. But because it still has some con- concussive force, it can mm-hmm. still launch something like it happened to Brandon Lee. So yeah, the yeah. fact that no one actually died is amazing. I believe if I remember correctly, I'm shaking on this. And so someone could probably counter this piece of trivia that I'm going to mention, but I don't think Chow Yun-Fat is actually very comfortable shooting guns. So sometimes mm. through his movies, you'll see him kind of wince and, mm. and even beforehand because he's he doesn't really like shooting them with loud noises, but you know, you have to look comfortable. He's an actor. Yeah. Uh, so that's the only piece of trivia I can think of. Well, do you have any other final thoughts that you want to share about this movie to encourage people to check it out? Well, before we were going to see it, I was worried that you weren't going to be able to see it. Fortunately, through the magic of YouTube, you can find this film as well as a few other John Woo films. So I highly recommend if you can find the movie i highly recommend buying it i don't think it's usually for rent that's the unfortunate thing some of these hong kong films because of rights issues you can't usually stream it easily Mm -hmm. which is unfortunate so it's at least it's on youtube if you enjoy it i highly encourage you to support their work and buy dvd or blu-ray but yeah check out john woo's work and see where you know the origin of gun fu and you'll see a lot of what modern action movies pull from hell yeah well this has been a wonderful discussion. I really loved hearing your thoughts on this movie and your experience with movies and, and feelings and other things. And thank you so much. Well, thank you for the invite. I really appreciate it. And if people would like to find you online or listen to any of your other projects, can they do that? And if so, where? <laughs> yes. Well, as mentioned at the top of the hour, we do a podcast together. At Gene Explorers Club is the Twitter handle. We've been on a little bit of a break. We're going to get back to recording fairly soon. And so, yeah, listen to that yeah can't wait to get back to reading comics and chatting about them yes absolutely (laughs) thanks again bye (laughs) bye Action sequences, they're they're just so babies. Uh, yeah, babies. So many babies. Yeah, babies. <laughs> babies. Babies. So many babies. 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 So many babies. Yeah, babies. <laughs>